the humanity of Christ. Christ is one person with two natures. <clears throat> the Holy Spirit uh, and the work and ministry of Christ and Christ uh, who is sinless and impeccable. And I'm going to be uh, saying those again when we get to those points. So if you don't get those now, then that's fine. But we got the deity of Christ, the humanity of Christ. Uh, the Christ is one person with two natures, or you can say the hypostatic union, or you can say the unity of the person. Um, and then we have the Holy Spirit in the work, the work of the Holy Spirit in the life and ministry of Christ. And then lastly, the sinless and impeccability of Christ. The sinless and impeccability of Christ. And I believe that these five aspects concerning the person of Christ really summarize everything that we have talked about relating to Jesus Christ uh, with respect to his person. Um, if we get any of these wrong, uh, then it's like a domino effect. And you're going to get the other one wrong. Um, or you're going to have, you're going to try to to make up for the thing that you get wrong and, and the thing that you lack. So if you get the humanity wrong, uh, the, the humanity of Christ wrong, then you're going to somehow get wrong his work. Or you're going to have to somehow get wrong his deity. Um, if you get the Holy Spirit indwelling the human nature of Christ, indwelling the person of Christ according to his human nature, uh, then you're going to get wrong a lot of biblical texts that speak of the Holy Spirit working in the life of Christ, in the life and ministry of Christ. You're going to have to try to figure out ways of, uh, no, nah, that doesn't mean that, or that doesn't mean that, or, or what have you. So let's do a simple review, and let's consider first the deity of Christ. The deity of Christ. Uh, Mark Jones, and if you don't know him, uh, you should, if you want to learn uh, some good creedal uh, orthodox Christology, but Mark Jones he says this. He makes an interesting statement, but I think it's true. He says, uh, Christians who confess that Jesus is God, hear this, Christians who confess Jesus is God are the best theologians in the world. Interesting statement, but not a necessarily controversial statement when you consider actually what he's saying. It's a correct statement. Christians who confess that Jesus Christ is God <clears throat> are the best theologians in the world we would think well shouldn't the best theologians be those who know all the ins and outs of systematic theology all the ins and outs of their eschatology the the final days or of of the ins and outs of the, the debate between uh pedo baptists and cradle baptists or or covenant theology but here he says that the best theologians are those who confess that jesus is god now why would he say that because if you consider the deity of Christ, there's only one view that's correct, that God, uh, Jesus Christ is God. Now, there's many that will come along and say, well, Jesus Christ is half God, or he's, not, he's God, but not really God. In fact, this was the debate at 325 at Nicaea. This is what caused the church universally to come together and hammer out, is Jesus Christ homo usias? Meaning, is he of the same substance of the Father? Where you have the Arians who are saying, no, he's homo usias. He's of similar substance of the Father. It's a little word, one letter, actually, that makes a world of difference. And then you have one like Athanasius coming along and saying, no, he is homo usius with the Father. He is of the same substance of the Father. All of what it means to be God must be predicated to the Father, yes, but also to the Son. He is of the same substance, the same essence, the same nature as the Father, and when we consider the Mormon cult or those of Islam or those of Jehovah Witnesses or those Messianic Jews, what's the common denominator? They deny the true divinity of Jesus Christ. They, they try to uh, come up with a Jesus Christ who is not truly God. 
but is God-like, who elevated himself to divinity by doing good works, and nonsense like that. So what do we mean when we say the deity of Christ? Well, first off, what we don't mean when we say the deity of Christ. And what we don't mean is we don't say that Jesus Christ is similar to the Father, or he's of a derived substance of the Father, or he's like the Father, but unlike the Father with respect to his essence or substance or nature. Some heretics will say that Jesus Christ is similar to God, but he's not truly God. He is not God in and of himself. Uh, the theological word for that is he's not ase. He is not self-sufficient, but he derives his divinity from the Father. Some heretics will say that the Son is divine because he's created by the Father. Allah Mormonism, uh, or Jehovah's Witnesses, that he, 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 he is divine. However, he's divine not in and of himself, but he's divine because he's created by the Father. And then they try to, but then they, at the same time, they try to smudge in, but he aren't to be, he's not to be worshipped the same way we worship the Father. We aren't to worship him as a, a divine being. Some, some Mormons, or not Mormons, some Mormons, all Mormons, <laughs> and Arians uh, would say that uh, there once was a time when Jesus was not, and he, he was a man, and by good works and obeying the law, he elevated himself to divinity. We aren't to believe that. We are to reject that notion that Jesus Christ, the eternal son, whom we believe, was once a man, and by perfect law-keeping, by perfect obedience to God, God said, now I grant you divinity. Now you can be God as well. So what do we mean when we say the deity of Christ? Well, it's simply this, saints, that Jesus Christ is truly God. Simple as that. That Jesus Christ is truly God. Now, although that is a simplistic statement, there's a world of theology in that statement alone. Jesus Christ is truly God. Our confession of faith says in chapter 8, paragraph 2, they say it wonderfully, the Son of God, the second person in the Holy Trinity. And here the language, being very an eternal God, being very an eternal God, taken from the Nicene Creed, very God of very God. An eternal God, meaning he's everlasting. There once was, there, there was never a time when the sun was not. He's always been, right? Eternal. The brightness of the Father's glory. Interesting, they say that. The brightness of the Father's glory. When you consider the sun, is the sun, can the sun be the sun without brightness accompanying the sun? It can't. If the sun loses its brightness, it's no longer the sun. So there's never been a time when the sun was without its brightness. Just as there's never been a time when the father was without his son. The son is eternal. Of one substance and equal with him who made the world. Of one substance. All of what it means to be God must be predicated to the father. The father is all-knowing, right? The father is all-powerful. The father is self-sufficient. The Father is simple without parts or passions. All of what it means to be God must be predicated to the Father, but also must be predicated to the Son. This is what our confession is saying, of one substance equal with him who made the world, who upholdeth and governed all things he hath made. It's not as if he's of one substance with the Father, but it is the Father that has the uh, unique role in upholding and governing the world. And the Son does something else. But the Son with the Father, with the Spirit, upholds and governs the world. That's what our confession is saying. Christ is true and essential God. He's, he's, and here's a word for you, he's consubstantial with the Father. He's of the same essence, substance of the Father and saints. We aren't to ignore, although it's that, that type of language is hard to grasp, we aren't to ignore that type of language, substance, consubstantial of the same essence of the father because our early fathers fought hard tooth and nail 
to say that Jesus Christ is of one substance with the Father. He is, he is of the same essence of the Father. Again, all of what it means to be God must be predicated to Jesus Christ. And we read of this in the, in the biblical accounts of what Christ says even about himself. What does he say in John 10, 30? I and the Father are one. Not that we are the same person, because that would destroy the Trinity, right? That's, we worship one God in Trinity, Trinity in unity. Uh, one, one God who, has, who is three persons, right? But I and the Father are one. I and the Father share in that one common substance, in that one essence, all of what it means to be God, I have with the Father. That's what he's saying. John 1, 1, of course, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Here we have in the wonderful prologue to the Gospel of John, the Apostle John sets forth the glory of Christ as he is a distinct person, but also he's co-equal with the Father. So he's a distinct person from the Father, but he's co-equal with the Father with respect to his divinity. Jesus says in John eight fifty eight. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. That's the name of God. I am Yahweh. He's identifying himself with the one who spoke to Moses in the burning bush. Paul, speaking of Christ, says in Colossians 2, verses 9 through 10, in him the full, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. In him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. First John 5.20 And we know that the Son of God has come. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true. In his, uh, and he is the Son, Jesus Christ. This is true God and eternal life. Lastly, Paul says in Titus 2.13 looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Saints, it is of utmost importance that when we consider the person of Christ, that we get the deity of Christ correct. If we get the deity of Christ wrong, then we can throw out the entire Christian faith. Because what does Paul say? If, if Christ is not raised, if Christ isn't who he said he was, then our faith is futile. We need to throw our Bibles away. So the deity of Christ, yes, along with justification by faith alone, but you cannot get justification by faith alone correct if you do not have a proper understanding of the deity of Christ. This is what the patristic fathers fought hard over, that Jesus Christ is of the same substance of the Father. And I hope, saints, that you understand that Jesus Christ, when you worship him, that he is truly God, that he's not just a man, but he is truly God of truly God. Second point, the humanity of Christ. Along with getting correct the deity of Christ, that Jesus Christ is God, that he is the second person of the Trinity, he is the eternal son, we must get correct the humanity of Christ. And when we say the humanity of Christ, many heretics have come down church history and tried to come up with a doctrine of the humanity of Christ that is not a true doctrine of the humanity of Christ. Meaning this. They say, well, Jesus Christ was partially man. That Jesus Christ came in the semblance of man. That he appeared to be a man, but he wasn't really a man. Or Jesus Christ came in the body of a man. So the only thing human about Jesus Christ was a body, but he didn't have a human mind. He didn't have a human will. He didn't have a human soul. He didn't have human emotions. We can't say that. Saints, when we consider what it doesn't mean to be human, what would you say? Well, one has to have a human body, but also a rational soul. 
In order for you to be human, you must have both a human body and a rational soul. But if Christ only had a human body, then what does he redeem? Simply our bodies? What about our human minds? What about our human wills? Our human souls? So we we have to deny that Jesus Christ merely came in a flesh suit, but he operated as a divine person. He had a divine mind only, divine will only, divine soul only. Jesus Christ is one person, and we'll get to this in the next point. He has one person with two natures. These two natures consist of a divine mind, human mind, divine will, human will, divine emotions, human emotions. We'll get there, though. Um, so what do we mean when we say the humanity of Christ? Again, our confession of faith. When the fullness of time was come, he took upon man's nature. And, and here's the language that we must hone in on. With all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin. With all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof. What does that mean? Simply this. All of what it means to be human the second person of the Trinity took on. Simple as that. What's a common infirmity? Sneezing. Going to the restroom. Being hungry. Getting tired. Getting angry. Getting sad. Laughing. That's a common infirmity. Those things uh, are things that we do as humans, right? But then they add this yet without sin. Yet without sin. He was truly man, yet without sin. And saints, when we consider the humanity of Christ from a biblical perspective, it's plain to see that even the birth narratives alone is enough evidence to show that Jesus Christ is truly man. When we, when we, if you ever get a chance and look at the three birth narratives in the gospel accounts, because John really gives you the, the theological rationale for the incarnation. But we, what we have in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and you heard this morning, uh, ample evidence that that one who was wrapped in swaddling cloths is truly human. <laughs> He's truly man. We have as well as Acts 22, Acts 2.22. Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth. And hear what he says, hear what Paul says here. A man, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your mints as you yourselves know. He's not, he, now, now, Peter's not saying that Jesus Christ, he's not denying the deity of Christ. But he's saying that he was truly human as well. A man attested to you by God. Luke five fifty two. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and favor with God and men. If he is not truly human, then how do you make sense of that? Does he grow in stature? Does he grow in favor with God and men according to his divinity? If he's, if he's merely divine and he simply has a flesh suit, that wouldn't make any sense. John, first uh, John four, two and three, by this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Christ Jesus or Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. If you confess that Jesus Christ, the eternal son, the second person of the Trinity has come in the flesh, then you know that by the power of the Holy Spirit. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist. Galatians 4.4 But when the fullness of time come. God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. If he is divine only, why would he be born under the law? The giver of the law being born under the law, if he's only divine. Also, if he's only divine, how is he born of a woman? Now, of course, we know that he is not born of the woman the same way you and I are born of the woman. It takes two people for us to be born, right? The Holy Spirit powerfully overshadowed the womb of Mary for her to be, to conceive, uh, Jesus Christ in order for her to become pregnant. But born of a woman speaks to the true humanity of Jesus Christ. 
also too, um, and me and Pastor Antonio were talking about this, uh, this has much significance when we consider Genesis 3.15. Remember Genesis 3.15, what does God say to the serpent? That a seed will come from the woman, right? Now, is Jesus Christ from the woman? Yes, but he is really from a woman. And we'll get to this in the fourth point, but the Holy Spirit took the substance of Mary and formed the human nature of Jesus Christ. He is really from, he is really the seed of the woman. Uh, the Apostle Paul, you can talk about that. You can talk about that later with uh, Pastor Antonio. Um, now, why is this important for our, uh, for Jesus Christ to be fully human? Why is it important? Um, well, of course, if Jesus Christ is not truly God, then he's not worthy of worship. But if he's not truly human, then how do we make sense of this verse? Romans 5.15. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many die through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. How do we make sense of Romans 5.15 if Jesus Christ is not truly God? By one man's trespass, many all fell into sin. But by one man's perfect obedience, one man's perfect obedience, many are made righteous. Here's the reason why Jesus Christ, I hope you guys don't mind me moving around a little bit. Here's the reason why Jesus Christ had to be truly human. When Adam sinned in the garden, when he transgressed God's holy law and broke the covenant of works, in what nature did he do that in? He wasn't a superhuman. He wasn't a super angel. When he disobeyed God, he did so in the nature of men. Thereby doing what? Causing all other men to fall with him. So what do we need in order for men to be redeemed? We need one who takes on the very same nature that that same one in the beginning fell in. That is why Jesus Christ, who is the eternal son, needed to become man. Because Adam fell, and when he fell, he fell as man. In order for man to be redeemed, a man needed to come and save mankind. There is a, there is, and I hope you guys all see that there is a beautiful link between the first Adam and the second Adam. The first man and the second man. I've said this before, but as Cyril of Alexandria has said, if Christ conquered as God, what is it to us? But if we, but if he conquers as man, we conquer in him. If he conquers as man, we win in him. I hope that brings a greater significance to when we speak about what Christ has done and when we say he did this on our behalf. <laughs> he truly did that, did all that he did on our behalf. The third point, Christ is one person with two natures, the hypostatic union. Um, I was talking to Pastor Antonio about this point. And I said to him, one of the things that causes many to stumble, causes many to backtrack, causes many to not pursue uh, more into the person of Christ is when we consider the hypostatic union, meaning this. How can one person live in two natures? How is that possible, right? And then on top of that, getting over the language barrier. What do you mean person and nature? I mean, those are terms that I'm sure we all know and we all say, right? But getting down to the very heart of what they mean is very complex. So let me simplify it in the best way that I can. When I say, or if someone was to ask you, what is Antonio? What do you say? 
Good job, Doreen. <laughs> that didn't take hard. That didn't take much. When I say, what is uh, Anthony? He's not the Flash. He is. <laughs> or when I say, what is Senya? Or I can go down the list. What is you? What is Isaiah? What am I saying? I'm making a, 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 I'm questioning what type of being is he? He's a man. He's human, right? Now, when I say, who is Antonio? Who is Doreen? Who is Moses? Who is these people? What am I saying? I'm, I'm questioning their nature. Who is he like? If I was to say, what is Doreen? I'm not going to say, well, she's funny. That's, a, that's, that's an improper answer to that question, right? I have to say, she's human. She's a human being. And then when I say, who is Anthony? Well, Anthony is all of what it means to be human. Anthony gets tired, he gets hungry, all those things, right? So when we say person, we're talking about the what of a thing. What is he? He's a human He's not a kangaroo. He's not a snake. He's a human being. When I talk about who, I'm speaking about the nature of someone, right? Uh, defining who he is, right? So one theologian has said, and stay with me, now that we have defined these, now let's go a little bit deeper. One theologian has defined person as this. A person is an active subject that or who does things and to things happen to. It's going to make sense right now. He's an active subject that, that does things and things happen to. Let me give you an example. If Doreen was to come up to me right now, and if she was going to kick me in my leg, and she's done it before, who is she doing that to? Is she doing it to my person or to my nature? My person, right? I'm talking to you right now. Am I talking to you as a person or as a human nature? As a person who consists of a human nature, right? So when I say an active subject, the person is the active subject that does things like talk and things happen to like, Waiters feed me food or things like that, right? That's an active subject. A person does the thing, okay? When we say nature, we're, thinking, we're talking about those things that make up who we are, the things that we are composed of. Now, how did this relate to Christ? Okay, this is what we're saying with Christ. He's one person. He's one what? Two who's. One what? Two who's. What are the who's? Divine and human. Right? One, one person with two natures. One person with two natures. Um, and when, and we'll get there. So what do we, what do, now, we're going to go a little bit deeper now. Okay? Follow me here. Now that we say that Christ is one person, and I can't even give an, an illustration, okay? So you just, just got to, Work with me. One person with two natures. And, and, and we're, not, we're not even to think about these two natures sitting side by side either. One person, two natures. How are we to think about this? How are we to think about him operating? Okay? This is what we don't mean. We don't mean that he's one person and these two natures, human and divine, ever mix. Creating a hybrid third type of nature. Okay? We, we are never to think that, that in this one person, there's human and divine, and they mix, and they create a hybrid nature. You know, yellow, green makes, what does it make, red? Something like that? Blue? Purple? Something? I'm only good at theology. I'm not good at colors. Um, talk to Martina. She's, uh, so um, what does it make? Lime green? Lime green. Um, lime green, Okay. So we aren't to think that, right? We, 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 that's, 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 that's a heresy that we are to deny. 
with full force. Also, we aren't to think that in the incarnation, when the second person of the Trinity united to himself a human nature, that these human nat- these, these, these natures are so separate that he's two persons, that he's two what's. That was the error of Nestorianism. That he, in, in the stories of his mind, he, he thought it's impossible that two natures can live in one body perfectly. So he had to come up with an, arter, an, arter, an alternate, alter, alter, alternative way of thinking that he's two persons in one body and two natures in one body. That doesn't make any sense, right? Um, he would have a split personality then. So what do we mean? We mean that the human nature never takes over the divine nature. And the divine nature never takes over the human nature. That the human nature never humanizes the divine. And the divine nature never divinizes the human. The human never does divine things. We'll get to there when we talk about the Holy Spirit. And the divine nature never does human things. But what do we mean? Our confession of faith says this. So that the two whole perfect and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person. Let me break that down. The two whole perfect, complete. He's truly human. All of what it means to be human, Jesus Christ is. All of what it means to be truly God, Jesus Christ is. Two whole perfect and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person. Inseparably, meaning they were never separated. You can never separate the human from the divine, although you have to distinguish. Without, and hear this, without conversion, without composition or confusion. Again, the human never crosses over to the divine. Divine never crosses over to the human. The human stays human. The divine stays divine, which person is very God of very God and very man. Yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. Here's John Owen. Each nature doth preserve its own natural essential properties. In this in, in this hypostatic union, each nature preserves its own natural essential properties. All of what it means to be God doesn't change. All of what it means to be human doesn't change in this incarnation, in this hypostatic union. Entirely unto and in itself. And hear this. Without mixture. The two never mix. Without composition or confusion. And here's what John Owen says here. Without such a real communication of one unto the other, as that one should become the subject of the properties of the other. Meaning the human nature doesn't become the keep holder of divine attributes. And the humanity doesn't become the keep holder of, of human attributes. Here's what he says. The deity, the godness of Jesus Christ, in the abstract, is not made the humanity. Nor, on the contrary, that the divine nature is not made temporary, finite, subject to passion or alteration by this union. Meaning that when the second person of the Trinity took to himself a human nature, he did so without any change in his divine nature. When we think about the hypostatic union, when we think about the second person of the Trinity taking on a human nature, there was never any change in the divine nature. The divine nature remained immutable. It was by addition, not by subtraction. Nor is the human nature rendered immense, infinite, omnipotent. The human nature doesn't become divine. Unless this be granted, there will not be two natures in Christ, a divine and human, nor indeed either of them, but somewhat, somewhat else composed of both. And then he gets into, well, if that was true, if the divine did human things and the human did divine things, then he would be a third type of nature, a hybrid nature, okay? Um, now, the biblical witness to this, John 1, 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The word became flesh, 
not merely took on a body, but he took on a body and rational soul. He took on all of what it means to be human. Colossians 2, 9. For in him, the, fu- the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. 1 Timothy 2, 5. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. Now, we must note the last thing we're going to say here. We must note this. When we say the hypostatic union, we must also talk about the communication of properties. And what that means is this, that everything that Jesus Christ does, the work of Christ is done by the person of Christ. Remember, saints, that natures are not active subjects. Persons are. So when we talk about the death of Christ, we know that Jesus Christ, according to his divinity, did not die because God cannot die, right? We say that Jesus Christ died according to his human nature. However, what we can't say is this. We can't say that Jesus Christ, or we can't say the human nature of Christ died for me. We can't say that, right? Or we can't say that it was the human nature of Christ that overthrew Satan's temptations and overpowered Satan's temptations in the wilderness. The person of Christ did that. The person of Christ, the God-man, Jesus Christ. And that's why we say we can never separate these natures. We can distinguish, but we can never separate. Last thing. uh, Remember when that woman who's caught in adultery is about to be stoned and and Jesus says, uh, if, 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 if you've never committed a sin, then throw the first stone, right? But if Jesus Christ was to be stoned, we know that he can't die according to his divinity. But he would die, right? The person of Christ would die, right? Although he would die according to his humanity, a human nature wouldn't fly from him. And then left there would be a human nature, a divine nature in a body. The person would die. So when we talk about the person of Christ, we have to say that it is the person of Christ that does the work on our behalf. All that he does, he does as a person according to two natures. Also, too, I said all the last thing. Last thing is this. He doesn't walk around and say, according to my divine nature, I do this. And in his mind, according to the human, my human nature, I do this. He does all things as the God-man. Jesus Christ. Um, Okay, now, which leads to the fourth point, the work of the Holy Spirit in life and ministry of Christ. Um, We did two sermons on this, and I hope that we now understand the work of the Holy Spirit in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And we see that the Holy Spirit was the closest companion to Jesus Christ in his life and ministry. And when we consider the work of, of the Holy Spirit in the life and ministry of Christ. It begins at the very early stages of Christ's life, as you know. How did Mary's womb become fertile? Well, it was because the Holy Spirit overshadowed the womb of Mary in order for her to become fertile. The overshadowing of the womb of Mary in order for her to, uh, uh, in order for her womb to become fertile and, and give birth to Jesus Christ, it was done by, by, not by, not by my seed. There was no heavenly divine substance that was infused in the womb of Mary. There it brings about Jesus Christ, right? Uh, it, it was not done by, it was not done by might, but it was done by power. By the power of the Holy Spirit, the virgin's womb became fertile in order for her to conceive Jesus Christ. More, more technically speaking, the person of Christ according to his human nature, okay? And then in the womb of Mary, what happens? What we see is the Holy Spirit had a, an especial, a peculiar job in forming and framing the human nature of Jesus Christ. And what was he doing there? He was, he was, he was, uh, allow, or he was taking that human nature, forming and framing it, and he was allowing it to become fitted. He was preparing it to be united to the divine nature. He was preparing the human nature to be properly fitted to unite to the divine nature. 
Now, this didn't happen, and this is where mystery comes in. I believe, and there's many that debate this, but this didn't happen in a sequence of time. But I believe that this happened at the moment of conception. At the moment of conception, Jesus, or the the Holy Spirit, united the human nature to the divine nature. And at the moment of conception, what also happened is the human nature was sanctified by the Holy Spirit. There was no progressive sanctification in the womb of Mary, but the Holy Spirit sanctified that human nature. Now, you, you might ask, why would Christ, according to his human nature, need to be sanctified if he's united to a divine nature? We must remember that the natures never cross over, right? But also, in order for Jesus Christ, the God-man, to perform the works as and, and the works as man, he needed to be holy. He, he needed to be perfectly sinless. But also, too, in order for this one human nature to be fitted to unite itself to divine nature, it had to be holy. The divine nature cannot unite itself with a nature, a human nature that is not holy. That would be impossible. So when we say, why did the incarnate son need to be sanctified? In order for us to be truly saved, we needed one who was truly man. And this divine equipping that happens by the spirit enables the incarnate son to be the savior of men. The Holy Spirit was equipping our Savior in the womb. That's really beautiful to think about. In the womb, the Holy Spirit was equipping this one to be our Savior, to be fitted, I should say, to be our Savior, preparing him. I think it's proper to say that the work of redemption doesn't start at the birth. It really starts, yes, in eternity past, and then sees itself in that womb of Mary. The spirit in the womb of Mary prepared the human nature of Christ to perform his work of mediation. And we see that the Holy Spirit continued to work upon the life of Christ as he grew in stature. Uh, As Christ grew in wisdom, he kept increasing in his ability to to use that knowledge that he obtained. And as Christ grew to maturity in his uh, uh, earthly ministry, we see that it was the Holy Spirit that worked in the life of of Christ, where when Christ was preaching, we see that many were amazed at the words that he was saying. Well, they were amazed at the words that he was saying because he was saying those words as man empowered by the Holy Spirit. It was the Holy Spirit that empowered the man, Jesus Christ, the God-man, but according to his human nature, to speak the very words of God authoritatively and accurately. And then when we move on in the ministry of Christ, we see that the Holy Spirit was uh, played a vital and important role in the miracles of Christ. That when Christ walked on water, when he casted out demons, when he did all of these miracles, he did so as man empowered by the Spirit. And as we move along in the ministry of Christ, we see as Christ um, got to those final hours of his life, that the Holy Spirit move closer and closer to Jesus Christ, where it was the Holy Spirit that, that comforted, that sustained, that, that kept in check the emotions, that kept in check the will of Jesus Christ according to his human nature. And on the cross, it was by the power of the Holy Spirit that Jesus offered himself up. And what do we see at the burial in the tomb. We see that the body that laid in the tomb was preserved by the Holy Spirit. That it was the Holy Spirit's peculiar job to keep the body of Christ holy from not allowing it to see decay. Jesus Christ, as John Owen says, It was the Holy Spirit that glorified the human nature of Christ and made it every way 
meet, every way meet for its eternal residence at the right hand of God. Maybe you didn't catch that. But in the tomb and in the resurrection, what we see is the Holy Spirit was making the human nature, the person of Christ, according to his human nature, every way fit to sit at the right hand of God. Just as he made the human nature every way fit to be united to the divine in the womb of Mary. He who first made his nature holy now made it glorious as Christ rose from the grave. So what we have is from the forming and framing of the human nature of Christ in the womb of Mary to the rising of that Holy One in power and glory in the resurrection, the Holy Spirit accompanied the person of Christ according to his human nature. You want to know more on that? Talk to me later, or you can read uh, volume three of John Owen. Fifth point and last point, the true, the true sinless and impeccability of Christ. The true sinless and impeccability of Christ. I am not going to explain every single way and every single reason why Jesus Christ is impeccable. You can listen to that on the podcast. But what I will say is this, that in order for Jesus Christ to be truly sinless, he needed, it was of necessity to him for him to be impeccable. Now, what do I mean when I say impeccable? I mean this, Jesus Christ, and if you never heard this before, don't faint. Jesus Christ was not even capable of sinning. Jesus Christ was not even capable of committing a sin. That's what we mean when we say the impeccability of Christ. Why do we say that? Well, let me give you one reason. Because he's the God-man. And the Holy Spirit sanctified the human nature of Christ at conception and continue to sanctify the human nature of Christ as he grew in stature. That is why. So, saints, what do we learn from all this? Well, this is not just me throwing out theological language for you to use when you meet an Arian, when you meet a Mormon, when you meet an Astorian, when you meet a Jehovah Witness or a Muslim. But when we consider the person of Christ and who he is and all that details, we must consider the great condescension of all of this. That this one, this, this one who sits on a throne became man. And all of that details where he is, he is truly God and truly man, yet one Christ, truly sinless, incapable of sinning. The Holy Spirit working in the womb of Mary in order for this Holy One to not be born of ordinary generation, but to be truly sinless, to be truly holy, harmless, and undefiled. When we think about the person of Christ, we must think about the gospel because it so connects to the gospel. In his work, uh, Anselm's work on why the God-man I've told this story before, but there's a conversation that he has with his friend Bazo. And Bazo keeps coming up with these reasons of, couldn't there be another way? Why the God-man? Which Muslims ask. Why the God-man? So Bazo gives reason after reason of why the God-man? Why this? What about this way? What about this way? And then Anselm says, My dear Basel, have you not yet considered the crucial matter? And it's this. The great weight of sin. Why the God-man? Why the person of Christ? One person in two natures, truly God and truly man, because of the great weight of sin. Our sin is a, is is an, is of infinite amount, is of infinite value against the holy God. It's cosmic treason. When we sinned against God in the garden, it was of infinite value. And deserved infinite punishment. 
even if we died for ourselves, even if we lived a perfect life, saints, what are you accomplishing? What are you truly doing? You're doing nothing. For you are infinitely indebted to God. Infinitely indebted to God. That is why, saints, there needed to be one who was truly God and truly man. One who was truly man to truly identify with us. And one who was truly God to offer up a sufficient sacrifice to appease the justice and wrath of God. This is why we learn about the person of Christ. Because without it, then we can't understand the cross. We can't understand the great weight of sin. You get the person of Christ incorrect. Then you get the garden incorrect. You get all of redemptive history incorrect. We needed one saint who could truly represent us. And he came in the form of a man, the God-man Jesus Christ. We needed one who could conquer not just our apparent foe. And this is where I think mainstream Christianity, word of faith, charismatic movement has gone off the rails. We needed one who could not just take care of the devil. We needed one who could take care of our greatest enemy, and that is sin. We needed one who could take care of our greatest enemy, sin and death. And the amazing thing about this morning's sermon is as those men were coming to see this one wrapped in swaddling clothes, was that one who was fitted to defeat sin and death. That one who was wrapped in swaddling clothes and who was born where the horses lie was the only one who was fitted to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. And that is take our infinite amount of sin, nail it to a cross, and give to us his infinite righteousness. Praise God for the glorious person of Christ. Let's pray.